Hello everyone, this is Boa Sobrado and Alex Kidwell on the recording of On The Margin. Here we have Craig McMahon, who is known to us because he's written a very interesting book that I have here on my desk, uh, titled Taming the Fringe, the Regulation and Development of the British Payday Lending and Product Brokering Market Since 1870, which is quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> Craig, what is your story? What led you to write this book? Well, I, I think like all at least good books or intellectual curiosity, it started with something I knew nothing about. And uh, my first introduction was actually as a potential investor. I was working for a private equity fund and a payday loan company came across our desk as a potential investment. Uh, and when I learned more about this particular company and, and the markets that they targeted and um, how the business worked. I said, well, I, I didn't even know these really existed. So I'm you know, very fortunate that my parents didn't need to take out these kind of loans. Um, I lived in an area where these uh, sort of storefront neon shops um, didn't exist. And again, that's as uh, much as hard work and luck um, from, from my parents. So I had a kind of a visceral reaction saying that, hey, you know, there's a lot of ways we can invest our money. Is this is this the type of company we as investors want to allocate our capital to. And that was sort of just a, a sort of a knee-jerk reaction, not based on any any fact or really understanding how these companies work. Uh, and then sort of fast forward, you know, well over a decade later when I was uh, thinking through what I wanted my PhD thesis to be on, I said, hey, you know, there's this whole segment of finance. So I had a successful um, career in capital markets and mergers and acquisitions, which is still my, my day job today. And I thought, you know, this is a great opportunity to learn something about a whole segment of finance uh, that, I, that I just have a lot of room to, again, to learn more. So that, that's how it started. It was really something that uh, a decade before when I had then had a chance to do the research that I started diving in. That's very interesting. I think one of the things that I found very fascinating about your book is that there's actually not that much written literature about this part of finance, right? The, the sort of small loans business, not a lot has been written down. And yet um, a lot of very visceral reactions exist, like the one that you mentioned. Um, why, why do you think that is? Yeah, and I think part of what I found is the, the visceral reaction or the reason behind it changes over time, but it's always there. And so I think from one perspective, you have that the folks who take out these loans are being taken advantage of. And so there's just a level of almost um, paternal or maternal protection uh, that, that these folks should be uh, aware of, of the risks and that they must be taken advantage of because of these high interest rates. And so part of it is that you have a flash number, which is a very high interest rate. Um, and we can talk later about is that even a fair measure of cost? Uh, so you've got that that borrower perspective, that instinct of protection, that they can't be good. They must be getting taken advantage of. And then the flip side of that is that these lenders must be making a whole lot of money, uh, that they must be so immensely profitable that there must be room in here to make it better than it was. And so I think you have it from both the, to, from more an economic perspective, the supply and the demand. Okay, so we've established that, yes, um, you know, these, these loans are kind of expensive. Most people know that they exist, but, you know, other than that and this vague notion that people are being taken advantage of, 
Um, I don't think most people really understand why some people in society take out these, you know, very, very high interest rate loans. Can you tell us a little bit more about why do these companies have customers in the first place? Yeah, you know, that that's a great, it's a great question. And that also gets back to these reactions. And so if someone is in the position that they need, I'll say a hundred pounds or a hundred dollars, they also must be spending this money on something that just isn't very important. It must be frivolous spending. Um, if only they budgeted better, if only they were smart enough to know that there's other ways to get by in life. And so part of that, is, it's it's a tension point really in, in, in answering the question is because you can come at it from so many different perspectives. Either they're getting taken advantage of or these folks um, are frivolous spenders and they, they shouldn't have the money given to them in the first place. Uh, and so you, you, you have varying reasons again, why you have this, this sort of reaction. And so um, I think that idea of when you take a, a elite or even a, sort of maybe even a middle-class perspective on there must be a better way to get a hundred pounds. And if you cut back spending in area X, then you wouldn't need to take out this loan to pay for area Y. Um, and the reality is uh, from, you know, what I could tell and undercover and talking to various sources, it's really not the case. Um, there are, you know, on the margins folks that spend frivolously and, and will take out these loans for, for perhaps spending that you, you would help um, move them away toward. But the reality is it's, it's just not the case. You know, this goes to paying bills. It goes to, at least in the United States, it goes to medical costs. Uh, I can go for school fees and school uniforms. I can go to fix your car. If you can't fix your car, you can't get to work. Uh, and so what we do find is that the the bill pay, the utility spend, um, and I actually could argue even the opposite, that someone who manages on this type of budget is so sophisticated in stretching every single penny um, that they're utilizing various resources for them to, for each month to, to close out to close out their bills. Um, I don't necessarily want to say in the most responsible way, but you could you could argue that because they're yeah. able to do it each month. Yeah. Um, so there's, you know, your book mentions two different types of of, of company. You know, the 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 payday shops and the the palm brokering um, shops. So what are what you know what are the definitions of the two? What are the key differences? Yeah, that's that's, that's also it's a great question and. Um, I, I, maybe first answer what brings them similarly uh, is that the, the the customer receives a cash loan. So they walk out the door or, of course, there's the Internet version, but we'll simply say well, they walk out of the storefront with cash in their hand. And how that cash is spent is not part of the credit review process. Uh, so what we mean there is... The, this this differs from other forms of consumer credit where you might have to spend that money in a particular shop or there was something you know, 100 years ago, check trading that, that actually died out not that long ago, where you could take a particular check, but it only was good in certain stores. And so this credit, you have a small cash loan and how you use it is completely up to you. Mm-hmm. They're, they're both similar in that they're dependent on your future wages to pay it back. Um, so you, you don't have extremely high forms of collateral. Now in a pawnbroking, there is a, there is a level of collateral. 
Um, and that's where they start to differ. And so if you walk into a porn shop, you have an object and that object has a value and you leave that object at the store and they lend a percentage of that value back to you in cash, um, say 50%. And if you come back in the period of time and you pay back the loan plus the interest, you get your object back. With the payday loan or the money lending loan, it's, it's similar cousin, um, it's completely dependent on, on your wages. And so I give you cash based on your future ability to pay me back from your income. In in the case of palm brokering, there is there are two misconceptions, or perhaps you know, based on your book, there are misconceptions. Um, one of them is that a lot of the items that are traded in are one lost by the people who go take take the loan out. Um, because the debt, you know, the, 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 basically the loan is constructed such that the point is for the consumer to lose whatever they bring as collateral. Um, and the other sort of commonly held belief is that, you know, that's where people go to, like, get rid of stolen items. Right. Um, is there any truth to these conceptions? You know, not really. Uh, and you could take it from a, a very variety of perspectives over time. So if we go back to the early period, start around the 1870s, um, the density of pawn shops in major cities in the UK is remarkable. And the amount of loan volume that's coming out is rather remarkable. Uh, so these folks were embedded in the community. Um, they lived typically above the shop, so to speak. And so what the clientele they're really dealing with, it's the same people week in and week out. And it's common household items. Uh, and so if, if you decided to steal an item and it was well above what that pawnbroker would expect to have in the postal code in which they lived and worked, it's pretty easy to see an alarm bell go off. When it's uh, Mr. and Mrs. Uh, Jenkins who come in with their silver uh, set uh, or uh, diningware set regularly every other Monday, uh, and it's actually the same set and it starts to decrease in value over time after year one and year two and kind of pawning the same dresses and ironing boards uh, and, and again, dining wear over time, the rhythm sort of sets itself. And so it was relatively easy for a pawnbroker to determine that one, I don't know this person who's coming in my store. That's a little bit odd. And then two, this item doesn't make sense in this geography in which in which they operate. Um, and the other was that the penalties were real and and, and relatively effective. Um, it was, it's not worth the risk today, and, and, and pawnbrokers today will tell you the same, and it wasn't worth the risk in 1870. This is how they made their livelihood. Uh, and so to have a penalty of, of dealing in stolen goods, again, on the whole, I'm sure on the margin that these things did happen, uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't worth your livelihood. You've touched upon a very interesting topic, which is the question of repeat custom. And I think this is one that is also slightly controversial. Mm -hmm. um, basically, from, from what I can tell in your book, you know, it, it is the case now and it was the case in the 1800s that most of these businesses can't really survive on, you know, the, the, on the first loan that they give to a client, basically. So it's, it's not the case that clients... You know, every now and then something unexpected happens to 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 someone and they all of a sudden need money and they can't get it. And, you know, they, they go to one of these shops and they get the money 
and they solve their issue and, and, and it's one and done, right? It's very much the case that most of the revenue in these businesses gets built out by people repeatedly again and again, taking out these um, loans. Um, and the reason why that's controversial is because if this is a repeated custom, then you know the, the high interest rates, the high costs will eventually add up quite substantially. Um, so can you, can you comment a little bit on that? You know, is it the case that these companies depend on um, repeat custom? Yeah. So in the case of, of payday loans, really the answer is is yes. Uh, and you know, I'm sure the listeners will be familiar with customer acquisition costs, CAC. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's a purely internet-based company selling you a product or it's a consumer loan, it's and, and especially in today's competitive world it costs a lot of money to acquire your customer. And the level of discount that you give, plus, for instance, how you optimize your search engine or or optimize your advertising dollars, it's a lot of upfront cost. And you spread that cost, at least from your kind of perspective, through all of your customers. And it is not uncommon that that first loan in this case, uh, based on the discounts and based on, again, your acquisition costs, that you end up from the business perspective, you spend more money than that person paid you in full full cost, be it interest rates and fees and those, and those, and those kind of things. Um, and then do you get the second cost? And it turns out from what we can gather, it's sort of around three loans and that person starts to become a profitable customer. Uh, the, the, the debt trap, the flip side of that, uh, is, is this was what we become concerned about is these repeat customers. Um, you know, one thing we think about from the economic perspective or as business folks is we often say compared to what? And uh, I sort of had one question I would leave all, all folks with who start reading and researching and dabbling in this sector. It, it, that's a very fair and important question is compared to what? And if this loan is being used to pay a utility bill, is it better to not take out this loan and have your electricity turned off? Or from apples to apple comparison, the utility late fees that are charged on your, say it's a 60 pound bill, uh, can uh, from an interest rate perspective be higher than what you would pay to take out the equivalent from a lender. And so the, the sample of what are these folks options out there, which almost gets back to a little bit of my first our first initial part of the discussion is there's actually a level of sophistication in determining the best way to make your end meet at the end with your various options out there. And so if you're a repeat customer, you have to take in mind what are all the other decisions that this the, the borrower is making when they arrive at the, concluding that the payday loan is their best option. That could be financial, but it could also be that this lender meets the needs of these folks in terms of operating hours, in in terms of understanding that if I borrow 100 and I pay back 115 pounds two weeks later, I've paid 15 pounds cash, so sort of cash in and cash out. Much less concerned with percentages, much less concerned with having banking hours Monday through Friday from nine to three, because you're working those times and you can't take off work because your wage structure demands that you're there on an hourly basis and you work until 8 p.m. And so part of the payday loan decision is, yes, there's the financial component, but there also is a business structure that has met various needs of their borrowers in a way that other finance hasn't. Do you think these customers are 
Because I think one of the things that gets to the crux of the matter is, are these customers effectively making the best rational, you know, most economical decision when they're taking out this loan? Or are they simply taking the, you know, what, what most of us would do, which is to take the most convenient alternative? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And, and something we're really fortunate with in some more modern times is we've actually included the borrower in understanding this market. And so there's a lot of great uh, nonprofit and charitable work that, that helps with interviews and understanding the decision where, you know, if you go back in the not too distant future, um, it was really policymakers completely detached from actually speaking to borrowers you for some reason and you know in, in 1920 you never thought to actually talk to anybody who who took out these loans we're thankful at least in 2020 we we do have various perspectives and so um one thing i'm really hesitant to do as much as i love economics um is is to take what we view as our standard rationality tests and put them on to groups of people who live very differently um, so I will say, yes, the convenient factor is really important, but my response would be, well, why wouldn't it be? Um, when a traditional bank closes at three or 4 PM and you work until 8 PM, six days a week, and they're closed on Sunday, well, that is your option. So convenience, uh, is, is definitely one of the factors. Um, the other factor that we hear regularly is, um, there's a lack of judgment. Um, the, the folks behind the, the storefront um, are are not, um, I should say, they seem to be extremely welcoming to the people who come in. Um, the satisfac customer satisfaction surveys are actually really high um, from these borrowers. And that's sort of taking some of the most uh, headline cases uh, aside, where these same borrowers say, hey, I don't, I don't feel comfortable going to a high street bank. Um, when I walk in there, it's very clear that those aren't my people. I am not welcome. Um, and that's both for sociologically, but also financially. You know, if you have 110 pounds in your bank account, um, it's not really a moneymaker for, for the high street banks. And so I didn't want to kind of dodge it too much, and, but I also very hesitant to, to kind of put an economic rationality on it. Um, but when I, when I weigh up the various factors that the supply side, the, the payday lenders, uh, have been able to provide, they meet the needs of these borrowers. All right. Um, I've got one more question before I let Alex get a word in. Um, so I guess one of the controversial topics and things that has come up a few times is, are these loans... Why are these loans so expensive? Yeah. People look at headline 100, 200, 300, 400% APR numbers. Why are they so expensive? Yeah, and again, this gets to, to the crux of the matter. So uh, one argument, and it's not necessarily the one that I take, but I, I believe it's important to at least consider, is that the annual percentage rate is an inappropriate measure to apply to a short-term loan product. And I think the best example to think through is uh, retailers don't sort of annualize their inventory turns, right? So you, you're a retailer, you turn your inventory every eight weeks, and you, uh, but you don't annualize that number. Um, if your credit's only outstanding for 14 to 16 days, why would our measurement be 365 days? And so is that it's the- a bit like 
you know, comparing one night at a hotel versus, you know, rent for a year? Yeah, it's very similar. So is it the right unit of measure? Um, and that's something, again, I, I just never even crossed my mind until I started actually diving into the perspective of the business or the bar, of, of the lenders, um, which I tried in my book, at least, to use them as sources. And I did get some pushback on that because some some of the, the folks had said, well, of course, that's what they say, you know, but they have a, their perspective is valid. Um, and the more I thought about it, the the more that the APR is not the best measure made some sense to me, um, especially when I think what I hear from borrowers is that this is really a cash in cash out. And there's a simplicity to cash in and cash out. Again, I borrow a hundred, I pay back 115 within so just say within 16 days, the loan cost me 15. And I know I have that each month. And so there is a simplicity in sort of cash in cash out. Um, it's the headline and, and folks who are thinking through this from a poverty perspective that the APR tends to dominate the conversation. Right, but if you look, you know, the loan terms are not very dissimilar from, let's say, a credit card loan term, right? So, you know, credit card, you're paying roughly 40% APR and you're borrowing for, let's say, 30 days. A lot of these small loans, average loan terms are like, what, like 21 days is comparable, but the APR is, say, at 400. Why are they so much more expensive than a credit card? Yeah, and so that, that to answer then that question directly, um, it, it's a matter of, of two things, really, again, to take a business perspective is your fixed cost. And so the underwriting process, whether it's 100 pounds or 5,000 pounds, um, is relatively similar. You're trying to assess using the tools available as, as the lender, will this person be able to pay me back? And there's a cost to when you're wrong, which is default rates. <laughs> and it turns out that People who are in need of this type of product default at much higher rates than, for instance, a high street bank would, would be comfortable with. Um, the, the hopeful side of that is, can we get better at assessing this credit risk? Uh, and then can we get better at bringing down the cost of, of underwriting and predicting defaults and then pass those costs on to to these borrowers who are in, in need of these small loan products. And that's kind of been the holy grail for at least since the 1870s. And I really started there because that's when leg modern legislation, so to speak, started coming into play. Yeah. What about, what do the, what role do the unit costs play here, right? Because if you're, uh, say a payday lender and you're underwriting a loan, you have to run a credit check, right? Very often, at least here in the UK, it's it's compulsory to run credit checks for, mm -hmm. for payday loans. If you are a pawnbroker, well, someone needs to look at the, the item and somehow right. assess the value of it, right? Now, these unit costs are, you know, running a credit check probably costs a payday lender about as much as a credit card company. Um, but the the actual amount that gets lent against the credit check is much smaller. So right. can that possibly play a role in the elevated costs? Yeah, again, absolutely. I, sort of, I, I kind of lump in the, in the fixed, the fixed category, uh, a number of different areas. And that, that is one. So you're, if you think through again, from the business perspective, if you, if you have a high street uh, loan front shop and you have to pay rent, you have to make a lot of loans each month that you're only getting $15 in revenue. You think about the rest is passed through, right? They're giving you back the principal. All you earn as a lender is the interest and fees. And so let's, for argument's sake, say that's 15 pounds on a 100 pound loan. 
your revenue is 15, how many of those 15 pound revenue loans do you have to make in order to pay your bills profitably? And what we see over time is uh, there are times where these, these lenders uh, on aggregate um, are, are profitable and perhaps more so than comparable financial peers. And then there are times that they don't make money uh, and they, uh, for a variety of either economic conditions or um, because they're just not very good at what they're doing and they lose money. But the, the idea that um, your revenue is the interest and fees different from the principal, which I think if you and I were talking about say a car loan or a mortgage would be very intuitive for people. But when you're talking about a small loan, again, they're, they're taking that $15 in sales and then spreading all of their fixed and variable costs into that loan. Um, one of the questions that I had, Craig, was there was a stat which really stood out to me. It was pretty shocking that 40% of uh, working folks in the UK had less than £100 worth in savings. And then... Yeah. It was even more elevated in the northeast of England. It was 50%. So basically, if, you, if your boiler breaks, you're in serious trouble because there's, there's nothing to fall back on. And the northeast of England, I think most, most folks in the UK, when they think of payday loans, the first thing that will come to their mind is the Wonga case, uh, which yeah. is very infamous in the UK for for various things, firstly, losing incredible amounts of money, but also yeah. the shocking predatory behavior of the company right. of customers. Can you talk us through what, about what actually happened? Because um, there was quite a few things happening around um, customers being affected and then the FCA stepping in and Wonga losing incredible amounts of money. So if you could talk us through the Wonga scandal, that would be great. Yeah, and that and that really becomes a, a poster child, so to speak, for a lot of the issues that we met with this this intersection of economic fairness um, of today. We talk of terms of sort of social justice and free market capitalism, and how these three things can come together. Uh, then the perfect storm of two thousand and seven to, to two thousand and nine of economic conditions, and you have uh, all the tailwinds for a, a company like Wanga. To, to grow. Um, I think what we saw there was the marriage of a platform, new technology, uh, fintech. And I think what most people forget is when they were considering going public on the stock exchange, they were positioning themselves as really a fintech company that happened to provide loans to a segment of the market. And, in, and that's not untrue because what they were trying to do was to what I alluded to earlier was, hey, is there a way we can do this better? Can we assess credit risk better? And if we do that better, then we can bring our default rates down, we can bring our fees down, and we can provide more of our product um, at a more profitable rate. Um, they did so, so aggressively. And what, one thing we do see that's unique about Wonga is their rejection rate was much lower, or their acceptance rate for, for loans was much higher than even their peer group that was using you know, not totally dissimilar technologies. Um, they then put that on the type of steroids in terms of their advertising campaign and trying to become sort of a, a, almost a cultural icon with their sport team sponsorships um, in, you know, buses, bus advertising and billboards throughout the United Kingdom. And so I think they took uh, modern, really aggressive marketing practices, um, I, I think probably well-intentioned in terms of um, using fintech technology to, to build a better mousetrap and then applied it to a very, very contentious topic, 
that was under the radar until you get a perfect storm of an economic calamity in 2007 and nine. And they just grew so rapidly, so quickly. Um, I'd be so interested if history took a different turn, if there was a mentality of uh, slower uh, and let's take a little tighter guardrails to see if the fintech technology can deliver that promise of, say, a lower cost loan that that remains profitable. Uh, but what we got was uh, cartoon puppets and sports sponsorships, and, um, and you know, and deservedly so. That that spun out out of control very very quickly, and it was quite easy to put a predatory um, cat a predatory tag on that company. But it then becomes across the entire category. Yeah, um, that's super interesting. And one one of the things that marked uh, Wongla's time was the intervention of the FCA that the regulations changed. Um, maybe you could give us some more details on how the regulations changed, and was there a catalyst which went from which positioned Wonga as a kind of convenient alternative to people who need small loans to actually, this is really quite predatory. Was there some kind of uh, catalyst moment where perceptions changed? Yeah, you know, it's that kind of gets to the long arc of the history of the book, um, which I was, I was trying to figure out what, what exactly, what did change. And what, what didn't change was this idea of price controls. So we have to, as a society, through the political bodies and or the regulatory agencies that gain their power through elected representatives, um, have a duty to say there's a limit at which the cost of money is harmful. Uh, and I, I sort of phrase it that way on purpose because price controls um, can, can sort of elicit all sorts of reactions from economists and business folks and also uh, folks who, who end up borrowing. But if we ask the question in that way, is, is there a price at which the cost of money becomes harmful? And what happened in, in post-financial crisis was the answer was yes. Prior to that period, and again, this little relatively small segment of the capital markets, if you will, or the total financial markets where I mean, we know national debt and credit card debt and all these, they have much higher numbers than this teeny segment. It turns out though, that we've wrestled with that question as a society um, in the UK and the US for well over a century. And what happens in the UK is over periods of time, the discomfort with this product because of the cost and the people who borrow has always been present. But the political class was unwilling to regulate the price of money for them. They would simply say, hey, there's, there's, there has to be market-based solutions. That was the 1970s that provide the, the right set of conditions to bring down loan costs. So sort of com competition and regulated competition, that, but competition will drive down the costs. Um, better platforms will drive down the costs. Prior to that period, um, there was, there was a, a more of a sense of the, the, idea of capping the cost of money is, is just not something that the British economy or, or you know, policymakers in it are comfortable doing. And it, 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 that does evolve over time. So I think what you do see is the headline Wongas of the world, or Wonga in particular, um, tipped the balance to say that not only is there a point at which the cost of money is harmful to people, and that, that question had been asked since the 1870s, 
Um, but we are now willing to take what from a financial perspective is the nuclear option, right? Because you are intervening in the cost of supply and demand balances for the, the cost of money itself. And you say so you cannot under any circumstances charge above this rate for this product. We will cap it. Um, what that does then is it decreases the available supply and increases the capital that's allocated to that sector. And they said we're relatively comfortable with those outcomes, with, with those the, the, the negative effect of this regulation. What's most interesting to me is that if you really read through what the FCA determined, uh, and I would have loved to have, they had more data on these loans than anyone in the history of the world, as far as I can tell. They had loan level data from every payday lender in the, in the UK. And they ran all the sophisticated models that they could, and they're very smart people who work at the FCA and well-intentioned in trying to, to get that balance of economic freedom and what they view as fairness, economic fairness. And they basically said, you know, we, we can't determine if these loans are harmful or not, <laughs> but we're going to put the price caps on anyway. And that actually gets back to our first question is that it's that visceral reaction of we just we know deep down that these must be harmful. Uh, and I try to kind of bubble through all of those those reactions. But that was most striking to me is that the most data we've ever had with very smart people and very sophisticated models still could not arrive at a definitive answer of are they harmful or not. What I think is fascinating about the cost of money, um, you know, the, the price controls on interest rates, is that they've been discussed for way longer than a few hundred years. In fact, yeah. the oldest known legal text, the, the, the Code of Hammurabi, which is one of the oldest, you know, texts that we know of, um, also contains a provision against the maximum interest rates that you can charge for lending, you know, grain or silver, which I think is fascinating because this this is clearly something that um, humanity has been grappling with since the beginning of time. One argument I think that is quite persuasive for some sort of price controls or price caps on the cost side is that these businesses are not competing on the cost to consumers. So they're not competing on what interest rates they charge the consumer. Instead, they're competing on two things, on credit policy and on marketing. And we kind of saw that with Wonga, right? Wonga, as you mentioned, had the, the greatest um, acceptance rate of, of any other platform. And they also had the greatest marketing spend of any other platform. So effectively, if, you know, from a regulator's perspective, what is going on is, you know, these companies, they know that the consumer is not particularly sophisticated. They just want, you know, convenient sources of cash. So they're going to go and they're just basically going to lend to anyone and advertise the hell out of it and charge so much money to, to recoup their investment in marketing and, and credit losses. Um, and I guess the, the, the argument would be that perhaps a interest rate cap would also, in fact, limit the amount that they can spend on advertising, limit the amount of losses they can take on in the form of credit losses. Do you think there's any merit to that argument? Yeah, it's a great perspective on what Wonga was, was able to, I think, to do 
well. Um, what, you know, what we do see is, so at what point is there too much profit? Um, how do we determine the inner workings of every loan that, that this company makes? And then on, you know, then on aggregate, um, come up with a, an amount that we say, okay, so beyond this amount, you can't make any more money. Um, and that, that, that may be what society and policymakers, that might be the objectives that's a limited, but the, I think the, the tricky part is, you know, if you, if you tighten it too much, then the capital is no longer allocated to that space. And, and then the demand for the loan is no longer fulfilled. And then you get to compare what? So what's the, what, what's the next best alternative for the person who can't take out that loan and it may end up costing them more, or it may even be a worse outcome. Um, you know, again, paying the heating bill in the winter. And so I, 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 I continue to struggle with, you know, trying to answer that uh, and, and wrestle with that question of economic fairness or economic justice and then economic profit and how they and how they're weighed together. Um, you know, you, you bring up an interesting point. So if you simply said, hey, you know, you can't market. There are products that we don't allow to be marketed um, in certain countries. You can't market pharmaceutical uh, products and that's not the case in the United States, and we have an abundance of pharmaceutical advertisements. Um, and so could you simply say this? Say, hey, you know, customers know where you are. Uh, you have X many high street locations. You're available on the Internet. You, you don't have to uh, – you, you are not permitted to market your product. Okay, maybe. And that would bring down the visibility. That would be something that's interesting um, as opposed to maybe capping – uh, struggling with what is the right price level because part of the issue that happens over time is that's a static price level and yeah. the economy and the markets are changing every second of every day. And so your customer acquisition costs because you optimize your search engine in October are different than what they are post post holiday season. And they're different depending on how much traffic is driven. And so, you know, all of those moving pieces that it takes to be, to be a profitable lender are, are in constant flux. Um, and that's, that's that struggle with price controls. And so I think, you know, their, their price controls failures over time are relatively well-documented, not in this particular sector. Um, but that reaction is so strong that they then ultimately take, that is the ultimate limit to, to a, a loan is I'm telling you, you can't charge more than a certain amount. Yeah, I think I think what's what's interesting about this idea that lenders don't necessarily compete on price, but rather on mm -hmm. availability of credit or um, advertising, is that you know in that case price caps don't even necessarily you know limit putting price price caps wouldn't even necessarily impact the profitability in the sense that. You know, if if lenders are in this you know bidding war for for attention and for acceptance rate, there could very easily be a situation where none of them are making money because they're basically you know competing to to attract customers um, and have very loose and lax uh, credit policies. And eventually, there's a huge wealth redistribution towards effectively advertising platforms, and people don't pay back the loans. So I think. There, yep. there, there's definitely something there 
to um, discuss with regards to, you know, maybe there's something that can be done to curb the, the, the animal spirits. And one thing that you've mentioned is, you know, something that's come up time and time again is these advertising restrictions. And I was fascinated to read about, you know, advertising restrictions in the late 1800s, right? Because yeah. they also came up then. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, in, in a way, as I guess you can tell, uh, listeners can tell by, by the accent as an American, I find that the catalyst to those advertising restrictions was very British. Um, and that was at that point in time, the the loan market was a little bit bifurcated. You had some upper class folks utilizing the product. And that was mostly because it was quite anonymous. And you didn't necessarily want to go to your banker for a, uh, a particular type of loan if you wanted to be under the radar. And yeah. so they had what were called circular advertisements and they were put into the postal boxes of some relatively wealthy people. Uh, and they were so prolific that they basically became an annoyance. And so one of the reasons those restrictions at first would get on the radar was that the lawmakers themselves always said, you know, I'm really tired of receiving all of these uh, circulars in the post. Um, it trickles down to the lower class and the smaller extremely smaller loans um, as a way to curb the behavior, as you mentioned, is there a way to curb these spirits? Uh, and so that that side had been dealt with. Um, you know, the ramifications of that are it, it, when you get to these type of markets that if you're not, if you're not dealing with the demand side, uh, which is decidedly more difficult to deal with, because then you're wrestling with a whole host of questions, the supply side becomes in, 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 in many respects, easier to to um, put policy on than than the demand side. And I found very little conversation, even recently, after looking at 100, 130 plus years of anyone who was really willing to think through, uh, you know, why, why are these around in the first place? Um, we would know those answers, but to, to try to deal with those answers is a totally different political set of questions. Why Why is someone who, again, when you look at the skill of budgeting and what they're able to do and stretch their money, and, and these are working people, you have to have a job to pay back the loan. Um, how they balance each month to step back and say, hey, why did they need 150 pounds in the first place? Why is that average savings rate so low? Um, you know, again, that becomes a whole other <laughs> a whole other host of questions. Yeah, I want, I want to talk about that, but I also want to step back to, to the topic of advertising restrictions. So one thing that I found very interesting is that to this, this day, particularly in the UK, there's pretty stringent criteria about how you are allowed to advertise payday loans. And mm-hmm. one of the rules is that you're not allowed to um, advertise so-called frivolous spend. So um, Provident, uh, payday lender in the UK, uh, got into trouble a few years ago because they sent around this direct response ad, you know, in the mail to people that said, you know, oh, Christmas wouldn't be the same without, you know, you know, and then, you know, grandchildren with nice Christmas presents and all of these things. And they got into trouble for that because, you know, they got fined for this because it said, oh, you know, these, these are clearly very frivolous ads. You're pushing granddad to take out a payday loan to buy an iPhone for their grandkids when, you know, this, that's just very frivolous. On the other hand, um, so that's what you're legally not allowed to do. On the other hand, um, a few years ago, I saw this, this 
ad, ad creative go viral on Twitter, which was basically a, you know, a, a credit service where you can you know, buy pizza with buy now, pay later, and people were horrified. Now, I kind of get both of them, but on one hand, you're not supposed to advertise credit for frivolous things, but also not for essential things like food. So, you know, what's what's the story here? I think also just to jump in, Bart, I think it also depends about the type of credit you're using. If you're using your Amex to buy that pizza, everyone will be like, oh, getting rewards for that pizza. Fantastic. But payday loan credit, uh, 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 that's very different. Well, and, and those, are, those are great examples. Thank you. Uh, and, and, and it's partly, again, thinking through, I was very careful uh, and, and I try to remain so in sort of projecting what I view as the, the spending pattern of someone who uh, has been fortunate and, and lucky in my life and not needing one of these loans, where, again, if I carry a credit card balance on, on my Visa card for a couple of weeks, and nobody, that's what, exactly what it's there for. Um, and I get my reward points versus I'm buying the same exact product. And so part of what we, we see here is understanding of the role of protecting low income or protecting the poor. And what is that societal obligation and then the policymakers obligation to do that? It also those stokes on fear. Uh, and then the fear that there's a group of people who are irresponsible and, and I'm going to stop them from being irresponsible. I'm afraid they'll spend the money on a holiday. And a payday loan is a terrible financial mechanism to use to pay for a holiday. What's most interesting in the 1970s when this was debating, there were actually some movement to say, hey, the people who are, I'll use low income, we often use the poor, um, they deserve a holiday too. So if you put your visa, if you put your holiday on the visa card and it takes you eight weeks to pay it back, well, how is that different from someone who took out the financial mechanism that's available to them to take a holiday too? Um, and they, this all swirls around this one product, which again, what makes it really interesting. Um, at best, it becomes a discussion of fairness. Uh, at worst, it becomes paternal and maternalism to protect people who don't know better. So I will show them the better way. Uh, and, it, and it oscillates over time. One of the inflection points that came up before that I draw out in the book is what also made that Wanga period different was um, definitive lines of financial inclusion, which we, we hadn't really seen in the past. Um, this idea of uh, bringing more people into the financialized system uh, at, at equal, more or less sort of equal footing. And that idea of financial inclusion also wraps in around the payday loan regulation uh, in a way we hadn't really seen before. No one had really ever proposed, again, there fits and starts over time, but no one in 1900 was saying, well, let's just give these folks high street access. Absolutely not. But by you know 2015, one of the answers was, hey, we don't need less finance, we need more finance. And again, people could can debate that. And the right kind of finance, proper finance, is you know is high street, high street lending. And so part of the answer becomes to provide the unbanked to get them banked. Um, but that also tips the scales away from this side of, well, attempt to tip the scales away from this side of the market toward more levels of financial inclusion. And that becomes also a, a different puzzle piece we hadn't seen previously. One of the most fascinating charts in your book is one that has to do with the amount of licenses that there are yeah. for on the, on the pawnbrokering side, and I found I found that chart really fascinating because 
um, what it shows is, you know, there's a steady rise together with, you know, the, the, the UK's economy in uh, palm brokering licenses, and this is becoming a larger and larger industry up until 1911. And then in 1911 till 1970, um, the number of licenses drops significantly. And there's a similar story for money lending as well. So basically, the, the, the demand side of the equation following, you know, 1911 or so just radically changes and people seem to in no, you know, no longer be need these loans that much anymore. Now, that trend has since reversed. And what I found very interesting is that there wasn't, as far as I can remember, a single piece of legislation that led to that, but rather it was very much a secular trend of changes in the economy and in society. So, you know, what, can you tell us more about that? What happened there? Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. And again, it kind of gets to the point of um, are there levels of effective regulation and and to and one of those side effects versus extremes for instance price control um, but one of the reasons we had this data was because palm brokers had to have a license um, and what we see is what in the at their peak it was actually about keeping people out of destitution mm-hmm. um, with a limited number of products that they could use as collateral or pawn uh, one of the struggles we start to see is the industry really starts to struggle from a profitability perspective because there were you know, limits on what they couldn't couldn't do was that the value of goods that was coming in um, couldn't hold its value over time. And so if it's the same dress <laughs> that it's going to d- decrease where I can't lend you as much as I used to. And, and um, that's also coinciding with this levels of destitution start to, to, to diminish um, with general levels of prosperity and also different social safety nets. Um, as social safety nets start to change and then consumer society starts to uh, augment on what what becomes uh, available the type of goods for pawn shift Um, so we don't see everyday items like spoons or um, clothing but we do see some electronic devices and watches and and even um, lower levels or higher levels of jewelry and gold Uh, but the need to pay um, for most folks, again, that immediate need that you have to pay, um, the the level of products also shifts. So there's a lot more competition for small loan market than there used to be. You've mentioned some now, the, what traditional layaway plans or you know, buy now, pay later, payday loans, pawn broker loans are, are just a few of what's out there. But for much of history, it was simply pawn was your only option to get a cash loan. And that's based again, again on the product. So you see sort of product shift and you see need shift. Um, certainly destitution was one of the reasons people took out these loans very, very early. And then that augments as social safety net shift and um, what becomes available for consumers to, to use. Um, so you need fewer of them when it's more, it's, it's watches uh, and electronic devices. Then there was a whole array of, of household products um, earlier. Um, I think we're, we're probably running out of time. We don't want to keep you too long, Craig. But I think we just, me and Boaz had one question each, um, just to wrap up. Uh, my question was, what is the thing about the small loans industry that everyone gets wrong? Yeah, again, that's a great question. I think, I, you know, again, a caution that the borrowers are frivolous um, because it just isn't, that's not what's demonstrated. 
And I, I iter- reiterate that, in fact, you could say they're extremely sophisticated people who manage on very, very little money. Similarly, uh, I would say... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Craig. Yeah, I would say similarly that lenders are extremely profitable everywhere and at all times. Um, that is also not the case. It's very expensive to lend to people who are in financial difficulty in the first place. And you are spreading your costs and your profit on small revenues when you consider it's the interest and the fees, not the principal of the account as your revenue. Um, for pawnbrokering, that it's associated with crime. Uh, you know, that goes back from the very beginning, that these are uh, back alley, dirty places that uh, elicit criminal activity. And that was not the case, and it really isn't the case today. Um, there are sophisticated businesses that have to be very good at what they do in order to, to continue to, to extend um, credit to folks who are, are in financial straits. One of, uh, one of the books on the topic by Gary Rivlin, um, Broke USA, uh, has a very, you know, less academic, but more sort of biographical, you know, he goes and, and chats to people who are operating these payday shops. Um, and there's dozens of stories in this book of some 20 something year old with very little money setting up a payday shop somewhere and then becoming a multimillionaire within 10 years. Um, so I found that interesting, partly because you know, what, what sort of credit decisioning is someone in an American payday shop in the 1990s really going to be doing on one hand? Secondly, um, I just don't really think that's possible anymore to a great extent for regulatory reasons, right? And the, the, um, the Wongo case as well shows the, the risk that these lenders face from a regulator's perspective. And to a great extent, this is one of the main topics of your book, which is that these lenders are you know, very, very much exposed to, to regulatory whims. So I guess my question is, um, are regulators the biggest risk for the small loans industry? I, I hope not. And I hope not, not because I'm particularly fond of them, but I, I have great respect for what they're able to do. It's because no one has come up with a better solution. And if you take away these loans, there'll be a lot of people who have to be even more creative at likely higher costs than there are today. And so I, I, I think I'd rather live in a society where they don't need those loans. And if someone said to me, here's, we're going to do two things. One, we're going to regulate them out of existence. And two, we're going to then provide this product, which is far better for borrowers than what we've regulated out of existence. What we seem to be able to do is we really struggle um, with coming up with the right regulation. And again, because no one's really willing to ask the harder questions about why they exist in the first place. If I can get comfortable with, with the second answer, um, then I would, you know, wildly support regulated amount of existence. And so um, I try to take as much practical approach as possible. Um, where the hope is, and I maybe ask my own question because I think it's, it's something that I almost leave to the two of you with your professional background experiences in fintech um, is the simplicity of, I hope fintech can, can do two things, that they using 
financial technology to lower the cost of lending, both from higher levels of credit assessment, so bring down the default rates, and then bring down all the administration and the fixed costs that come with lending small loans. And if you can do that, that's a total different way to provide than what has come in the past. And so the famous you know, financial historic question, is this time, is it different? Or you know, is this time different? Well, it very well could be, um, but I don't know if the technology is asking the right questions. And that to me is, is basic, the two most basic questions. Uh, or one really, are we bringing down the cost? Are we doing better than what came before us? Because the platform, the ease is definitely there. You know, you're, it's easier to get money on people's phones than coming into your shop. Um, so to that, I have great hopes, uh, but I'm not someone who has the fintech background to be able to do it. But that's what I would, would um, I hope the fintech industry is, is um, aiming for. Have you, have you seen any compelling examples of this in the U.S. of, of some company that seems to be getting it right? <laughs> not yet, no. Um, and it gets back to, it's just it's terribly expensive to lend to people who, who, who are in this category. Um, I, I, I think where I've seen um, strands of hope where, is where um, utilizing new sources of information to assess credit. And so um, if you're bringing people's social media feeds and looking at uh, how they interact online and who, with whom they interact and when and all these different pieces, you can assess credit better than simply a credit score. And so this idea of, of inclusivity and credit risk um, seems to be promising, um, but maybe it's too early to know. Um, you said, Craig, that you um, were introduced into the topic of small loans from out of curiosity, um, but also related to your work and, and VCs and M&A. Um, I'm curious to know, did you end up investing after all your research? <laughs> you know, um, so the initial uh, introduction to the sector was was uh, probably 2003 or four. Um, and the answer is we as a firm did, did not make that particular investment. Uh, and it, it gets to um, actually sort of war of the, the, to recognize that we are now in a land with Buffett and Munger and, and Charlie's passed away. That the, the simplicity of would we want this on the front page of the news that we invested in this company we decided that was the test we didn't need to talk about it anymore because the answer was no there were other places to to invest our capital so we didn't make that investment um if i had the option today i would i i would prefer to invest in some of this promising technology that i hope would bring down bring down the costs that then get passed on to the to the to the borrowers as well that's where i would i'd want to see this this go today okay Craig, thank you very much for your time. This has been a fascinating conversation. Great, thank you.